0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. This is your host, Lee Pierce. She hears pronouns from the State University of New York at Georgia. I'm sorry, at Geneseo. I just moved jobs. I get very confused. Yeah, I'm very excited today to have Ann Chang here, Dr. Ann Chang. And we're going to discuss, it's not her newest book, actually, but it's uh, her almost newest book. And it is called Second Skin, Josephine Baker and the Modern Surface. And so I typically, as everyone knows, I do not love origin stories on this podcast, but I want to tell you how I came to find this book because I think it sort of speaks to the dominant theme and why even after listening to this podcast, this is really a book that needs to be read one-on-one. So essentially, I was—I am a rhetorician. So I study how um, different words and figures and dominant argumentative devices circulate conceptions of what is normal and what is powerful in culture. That's kind of the, the down and dirty definition. And I do a lot with surface depth tropes. So why we add depth to some things, why we treat other things as surface and how those normalize power and privilege and are historically constrained and change throughout time. And so I was writing about a particular film and why some scenes add depth to the characters and why some scenes sort of emphasize the superficial. And someone reading it, a reviewer said, oh, you got to read An Chang's Second Skin. And when I originally read the description, it was a lot about architecture and and modernism and art. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, yeah, this is not my wheelhouse. But the thing that caught my eye is that this is actually a book. It's not a book about Josephine Baker, the way that we think about like biographies of Josephine Baker or critical readings of Josephine Baker, all of which exist. Josephine Baker is this incredibly unique rhetorical figure who quite literally functions as a figure throughout the book, but also sort of the quilting point through which Chang puts together just all of these beautiful strands about modernist art and this obsession with surface that we often overlook when we think about this time period at the turn of the century and the early 20th century. It connects together architecture. It connects together uh, the songs and lyrics of Cole Porter, Baker's film stills. It is just a book of absolutely amazing breadth that ironically is also a book concerned with the obsession with breadth. And I was really drawn to this book. A, because I've always been interested in Baker, but B, because of just the absolute critical eye with which Chang explores Baker as she sort of moves through this rereading of modernism and the obsession with surface and just everything from the screenshots to the writing. You know, it's hard to describe an academic book as a page turner, but if there's a page turner, I mean, this is definitely it. And I won't say much more because I definitely want Anne to do a lot of the talking here. But what I will say is that what's fascinating about this book is that this, this colonialist perspective that we've all been trained to think about when we think about modernists, right? So people in the 1920s and 1930s when blackface was still very popular and a lot of the conquering of the Orient was happening, we're taught that this modernist obsession with sort of, quote-unquote, mastering the other is, in fact, much more complicated. And you can see the nuances of that relationship throughout all of the different chapters and different texts that Second Skin takes up. And I'll read here from a direct quote on page 103, in which Chang writes, We, on the other hand, have been tracing, so the book has been tracing, the intricate ways in which modernist artists and projects are themselves profoundly transformed through the process of engaging with the imagined racial other or object. And I want to again make the point that in no way is this book sort of an apologia for Uh, you know, sort of racist politics. I mean, it's a lot of what happened in the early 20th century was just racist. But the point is that these racist engagements that we sometimes often just dismiss as mastery or objectification really have these dramatically nuanced ways in which seeing is doubled and uh, it oscillates between surface and depth, skin and interior, mastery and objectivity that I just think are pulled out so beautifully in this book and made me really reconsider not only this time period but just the whole way I think especially that Baker has functioned in the popular imaginary. In fact, I went I went back and I rewatched several of Baker's films after reading this book and just saw things in a way that I had never thought about, and it has made my own writing so much better. So I will stop fangirling over this book now, and I will introduce uh, Dr. Anne Chang. She, hears pronouns. So Anne, I assume you're on the other end still and have not fallen asleep at my ranting. No, and, I am honored by it. Thank you. Yeah. I, oh, I'm honored by this book. Do you want to say just a quick hello to the folks at home since Yes. Um, Sounds great. Cool. Hi, yeah. hi. my name is Anne Cheng
1: and I'm a faculty in the Department of English and the Director of American Studies at Princeton University. I'm an interdisciplinary scholar who works at the intersection of many fields, literature, visual culture, law, material history, psychoanalysis, critical race theory, theory and so forth. So I'm a little bit all over the place. Um, But I would say that if I have to summarize my work, it would be that it always takes place at the intersection, the very often problematic intersection between aesthetics and
0: politics. Awesome. Well, um, you and I talked a little bit before the interview about just the absolute, just this book. I mean, it, it both wrote itself in the sense that, like you said, like you can't make this stuff up that you're tracing from all of these biographies and museum artifacts. and But also it took someone with a very keen eye to pull all of this together. So do you want to say a little bit about the work that got you on the track of the book before we maybe just jump into the pages? Yeah, sure. Um, so I what started this project was really a very curious, just like a very small question
1: that I had. Because I've always been interested in modern architectural theory and even though it's not my field, I read a lot in it, and it occurred to me that it was very strange that all these high modernist architects, from Adolf Lowe's to Le Corbusier, who you know wrote endlessly about how terrible ornamentation is, how terrible tattoos and other kinds of sort of regressive primitive markings are, how why so it occurred to me why are these architects who are so allergic to all these kind of like you know skin marking would actually choose to call the surfaces of their building skin. So the idea that skyscrapers have skin, for example, is is a kind of discourse that emerged in the early 20th century. And so it just got me to thinking about, well, what is this thing about skin? And, you know, how is 20th century ideas of skin, which is very technological, clean, um, non-organic, how is it related to other kinds of skin, very organic skin, like racialized skin? You know, um, so this is actually so. It's questions like that that first got me started, and at some point, I actually had to sort of actually a very good friend of mine, I, and then that led me to Adolf Loos's work and that very peculiar house that he designed for Josephine Baker, when we talk more about in a minute. Um, but it was in studying that house that I realized that Josephine Baker is actually. A very critical figure in the story that I'm trying to tell, and then it took another, like several, I would say several, you know, maybe a year or more before I could actually like commit myself to the project because you know it's scary to write about Josephine Baker for a lot of reasons. and And a very good friend of mine said to me, finally, um, she's also a, uh, this is Sadia Hartman, who's a African American um, scholar specialist. Um, who specialized in African-American literature, actually, said to me, hey, Anne, why don't you admit you're writing a book about Josephine Baker? <laughs> and it was at that point that I thought, okay, this is what I'm doing. And so that's how I came to it. But it was actually not a, um, it was a very circuitous route. And I think my way to getting at almost everything is very circuitous because my interests are um, wide-ranging, and it's a question of how do I How do I organize the
0: material in a way that is, um, you know, interesting and productive? Interesting and productive are understatements for how much I enjoyed this book. And yeah, what's, I mean, what's really captivating and you must have worked, you either are the world's most brilliant writer or you must have worked the editing on this so hard because the way that Baker appears and then echoes through the book, but is not the, I mean, you just enough biography that there's context for the argument, but it's never about Baker, but it's also never not about Baker. Yeah, that was a challenge. You know, it's, for me, it's and it, it, you know, I'm a very
1: slow writer, so it, it took a long time to write this book. Um, but yes, I think that was the challenge: was how do I? I mean, so this is how do I? Um, so I did not want, I did not want to write a biography of Josephine Baker, um, partially because there are twenty biographies of Josephine Baker out there. Um, in all different kind of languages, um, I just did not think the world needed another biography of Josephine Baker. But also, thought for all this, for all the presence of all these bio- biographies, it's startling how little people have paid attention to her as a performer and an artist. To actually the the specificity, the performative, rhetorical grammar of her work. You know, no one has actually treated her as a serious artist and studied her work. So that's part of what I wanted to do very much. So, But also, I wanted her to be, I wanted to uh, honor the the person uh, as a real person, but I also wanted to track how she operates for so many people and i would argue even for herself as a symbolic figure and so the book has been very much about how to do exactly what you said and i really am thankful that you saw that um how to have enough of you know the so-called real baker in there but also be very aware that I am actually not presumptuous enough to think that I'm actually writing about the real Josephine Baker. I don't think anyone knew the real Josephine Baker. She was such a constructed and self-constructed figure, you know? Um, And this, what you just said is also related to my relationship to thinking about sort of the stakes of thinking about race um, and how to write about race. I think there's a lot of people who have written wonderful and important works on the material history of race. But I don't think enough people think about the ineffable aspects of race and racialization. And so the the challenge for for me for this book is to think about the material consequences and history of race without falling victim to the facticity of race, if that makes sense. And so I think that that that's kind sort of negotiating between Baker as there and not there, and me thinking about race as something that is there
0: but not there are related. So much good stuff. Okay, so before I forget, three trains of thought. One, the the of course, now the irony is if people listening don't know who Josephine Baker was, how do you describe her without turning this into a biography? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, actually, if you don't mind, the second paragraph of the very first chapter, so after you kind of introduce these questions of what's this deal with them obsessing with skin when they're supposed to be anti-ornament, you then say, This book, meaning the book you wrote, turns our attention to the mysteries of the visible and how those mysteries dwell on the surfaces that we think we know all too well. The above seemingly unrelated questions of style and really of desire are all are all part of what I call modernism's dream of a second skin. And our entry into this story will be the surprising figure of Josephine Baker, a woman who achieves international fame overnight for wearing her nakedness like a sheath. And what what's really interesting, and I wish people could see this, maybe I'll post it in the social media for the for the post, is then there's this image of this very lithe, bendy, long, thin, black figure with that short 20s flapper haircut and her whole body is nude except for she's wearing this skirt that is and this is like a a, a drawn graphic that looks like banana skins and feathers kind of all at once right what i think is so cool about this image is that if you didn't know who josephine baker was you could immediately figure out because this image both has come from baker and also preceded baker as part of this fascination with what baker turned into as this odd combination of like a She was like a French American Jerry Lee Lewis black woman who was one part like sexy Halle Berry and one part very strange vaudeville, very unsexy comic, like physical, awkward comedy in a lot of ways. And so what I thought was so cool is that your intro to her instead of a bio was this iconic image that both is and is not Baker. So I thought the choice to use art there was very, very, uh, just very astute and very engaging.
1: And I—that's—that's the—I think that's the you're thinking. I think you're thinking of the lithograph by Paul Colan, which would yeah. And so then that's actually a very the other thing that I think is interesting about the art around Baker is that it shows you what a high it underscores what a highly designed figure she she was. You know, I think a lot of the public language about her is that oh, she's a she's a black woman who danced in a nude or danced topless, and so the the, the discourse is that the rhetoric is all about her corporeality, her nakedness. But in fact, I think her nakedness is, is like a weird concept in in her, in her work. Um, but also, I, I I like the visual arts um, photo the the image there because it underscored what that she is a style that Josephine Baker for the modernists was above all a style. And it's a it's a style that she has also cultivated herself, not just a style that other people have projected upon her, uh, but that she has, you know... And that's another one of my interests, is to really highlight the ways in which her relationship to these modernists were an interactive dynamic. It's not just about them projecting things on her and then taking her and then, you know, making her into something else for their own art, but that she... Was, she was manipulative about her work. They were susceptible to it. They were changed by it. Um, it's a it's a very dynamic relationship. And that relationship, I think, is what is often missing from accounts of modernist primitivism.
0: And this is going to be the really tough thing. I mean, as a, like, a rhetorician of style, I, I deeply resonate with all this. But, but one of the things you're doing that I think is so important is that we have this popular common sense, e- even among academics, <laughs> that the best way to understand Something like a black woman from a hundred years ago who's obviously like in in today's politically charged environment a very unique kind of opportunity to rethink the history of race mm-hmm. that the best way to do that is to quote unquote find the real her right, and that if you do anything else, like for example, if you think of her as very stylized or you capitalize on her stylist tropes or you trace her as a as an object that is deployed in text written by essentially white French men, that you're somehow undermining her or debasing her. But this is a really important point that that adding depth to something is not the, necessarily the best way to understand it. Right. Yeah. And yeah. So I think the resistance to bi- biographicizing is precisely the point of critical race studies, which is that race is never just all surface or all depth, right? It's It's the way that those two tropes get articulated to do certain things at different times. And your ability to move between them as sort of a new vision of modernism and a new way to understand Baker is just very well done throughout the book.
1: So there's a problem with I think authenticity as a as a and as an ethical and intellectual um, antidote, right, to, to notions of you know, racist projections, but because it can reproduce itself in these sort of uncomfortable ways with the re-essentialization, et cetera. But I actually just think on a very simple level that it is actually. Disrespectful to imagine that we could have known Baker. She was a performer who was very self-consciously so. She rep- She gave the world surfaces and, and images about herself that are carefully constructed. Every, even her home, she lived in a house that was half a museum, where people would come through and look at not only her things but the aramas that had been constructed um, that you know of her. Um, so we don't actually know Baker. I thought she I think she was a very private person, and that um because we can't know Baker, what we can know and what we can study is the rep, her representation her self representation as well as other kinds of um images that have been projected onto her figure or that her figure has invited and accrued over time
0: yeah, and in um so in post structuralist. Rhetoric. So we're getting a little deep for the audience because a lot of people are not academics or actually just general readers. But so you use this word representation that that there's something sort of wrong if we don't accurately represent Baker. But one of the things that we talk about a lot in my field is that there are other logics of understanding Mm -hmm. a concept besides representation. Representation, again, is that surface depth, right? The idea that there Mm -hmm. is something inside Mm -hmm. that needs to come out and that it's there to be discovered. It's kind of very social science-y. But if you think about Baker as a figure of articulation where multiple Mm -hmm. desires and needs and resistances come to merge, that's not a bad that's not a better or worse way of looking at it. It's just an alternate logic and really all identity, right? I'm just not famous, but I'm an articulation just like Baker was. And in, in many ways, I, I agree with you. You actually do more service to Baker as a historical figure, as a person treating her as an articulation than as a biography. I mean, and if you think about it, if, and again, I'm not like really interested in who Baker was, but if, if you were listening to this going, well, this isn't fair to Baker. If you had to ask Josephine Baker, would you rather be this book or some biography somebody wrote? You gotta wonder which you. I mean, I, th- I think she'd rather be this book, right?
1: <laughs> well, I actually love that formulation. I love thinking about her as a kind of articulation, um, because, because um, you know, like in poetry, we think, at in, least in modern poetry, we we talk a lot about an articulated line right? A line that has breath and that moves um, and emits meaning in different kind of rhythms and ways. And she's very much that way. You know, I think her, I say performer. And that's why I also love that poster that you mentioned. Um, It's a very articulated figure. You know, it's a figure that not only is in motion, but also um, articulates not only through what's there, but also what's not there, right? So the negative space is important as a Positive space. Um, so, anyway, thank you for that. I love I love that term for thinking about Baker as a as a figure.
0: Yeah. Well, that's that's Stuart Hall. Do you read Stuart Hall? I yeah. Well, I did <laughs> once upon a time. Yeah, he, he, he's my guy for articulation. I love him. I was very sad when he passed away because now he'll never be on the podcast. Um, yeah, and and you make this point. I mean, throughout that essentially Baker, and I think you say this uh, at some point. You call Baker. What if instead of thinking about Baker as the Expression or the representation of black, black the black woman body in history. What if she's a rupture, meaning she didn't necessarily transform everything, but she's a moment where all of these assumptions sort of get reconfigured. Some get settled again, some get Mm rearticulated, and some get actually just straight up disrupted.
1: Right. right? Right.
0: And then, and at another point, you say she is, um, she's an object, uh, which is important because she's not a surface and she's not a depth. Right. She's all of those things. Mm Depending on who you, who uses her and how she uses herself, she's an object in which the inherent contradiction of modernism is projected. Meaning, she sort of is almost like a like a sponge that absorbs and then kind of squeezes out throughout history all of these different contradictions about mastering race and wanting to be victimized by race and wanting surface and wanting depth and, mm-hmm. and wanting skin and wanting interior. And I mean, it's just yeah, huh, right. it's so cool. Right. So, wanting woman, wanting thing. Yeah. Wanting woman, <laughs> wanting thing. Absolutely. Or or, 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 wanting, wanting woman as object, and and the womb, the the sonic womb. At one point, you talk about with her singing. That was, that was. So, uh, oh my gosh, such a good that's chapter. That's
1: other thing. She has a, such a amazing voice. It's um, it's very, it's a very articulated voice. You know, it's not the same voice every time. You know, she, um, she she did not have a huge range. You know, I'm not a musician, so I don't know. But I know that she does not have like a huge range. But she has a lot of um, different characters to her voice, depending on what she's singing. So when you listen to her music, um, it's not just about her
0: her lyric. It's also about how she sings it. I mean, she's and, you know, it is interesting. No one's ever done a sonic project on Baker because her voice gets kind of and you may mention this in the book. Even though she was incredibly popular, she gets sort of her voice gets a lot of of negative press.
1: Right. And actually, that's the thing. That's the other thing about Baker that I find rather surprising and, and, and sad, which is because she is a complicated political figure, people either hated her for being an embarrassing primitivist figure or they loved her for being... Um, like an icon, right? For being popular, for being the black woman who made it. Um, But I think somewhere between these two opposition is actually a kind of blindness about her because she's being looked at in these ways rather than really analyzed and studied and, um, even people who love her will say things about her that I find incredibly dismissive. Uh, uh, I remember re- reading this um, black feminist piece about Baker, and it says something like, you know, and I think I quoted in a book, and I can't remember now. It's been so long, but it says something like, um, you know, she was really, you know, famous in spite of her her you know weak voice and her her pathetic little you know little girl thing. I, I can't remember what the co- quote was, but. Um, but that there was a way in which I thought, oh even people who really admired her haven't actually studied her, and that's what's kind of amazing to me is yeah. that yeah. the irony
0: of course is they did the same thing with her that you did. Yeah, <laughs> they, they turned her. Oh, well, actually, it's worse because they turned her into something rather than allowing her to articulate as sort of the indexical figure for this series of tensions and desires and shifting norms of culture and gender and race. Uh, and that's that the time.
1: problem with like, terms of primitivism, even though right. it's, it, it has done a lot of really important work. It is so, it has become so, um, what's the word, hegemonic? It's become so big mm, yeah. that we everything that we see that we think goes into that category get filed in there rather than actually looked at and studied. Um, and so part of what I would hope this book would do is say, is to hope to read, hopefully say, hey, let's slow down and look at this incredibly fascinating figure, look at the ways in which she engaged and is engaged by modernist. I mean, in my account, she is not just a modernist object. She is also a modernist. Well,
0: yeah. It, and yeah, I mean, I think that's what's really interesting is she, she is... And again, when we say the word like verbs, like is, we don't really mean like she is. We mean that she, whether she is or is not, she has come to function as the sort of point of cathexis between the, the all of these different facets of the modernist project. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, and I prior to this, if you told me I, w- I was going to read a book on modernist art and architecture and be fascinated, I'd have been like, yeah, maybe. But oh, man, I'm so into it now. Um but, you know, we should probably move into some architecture, too, because yeah. I, I feel like we're, we're so into Baker that we're almost undermining the very point we t-
1: tried to make. Well, but, you know, the architecture is really interesting because, it's, you know, it, it sounds like, oh, if you're not interested in architecture, it's, you know, what what's the relevancy. But it is actually the the reason I'm interested in art, in modernist architecture. And it gets so interesting in this Because book. it is the it is the beginning of a of a, of a modernist style that we still live with today. Like to this day, the reason why our computers look so, the reason why a Mac computer is so desirable is because it has this sleek, clean surface. It is, you know, to this day, we think that. We think that being a modernist, being modern is to be sleek, is to be technological, is to be simplified, is to not have not covered have cover. Not be covered by, let's say, Victorian ornamentation, but this is the, all these ideas about what is modernist, what's modern looking, um, and then all the ideologies attached to that came from people like, look, uh, like um, Adolf Loos um, and others. So architectural theory is, you know,
0: in many ways the birth of
1: modern style.
0: Why don't we? Why don't we move into the loose house? Yeah, because. I mean, my favorite part of this is definitely the black and white pinstripe suit and especially the reference to His Girl <laughs> Friday, which is one of my favorite movies. But you kind of need the image, I think, for that to right. land. Yeah. And um, there is the image in here of Loose in that weird room with all the the skins. Is that the same yes, house? Yes. Yeah. No, no. That's I,
1: not the same house. Oh, that is which, not the same house. Which
0: that, one's the one with the fuzz on it? Uh, that is a room that he built for his wife. Okay. So that is a Loose room. That's yeah. analog, but it never get, winds up in the Baker House. Okay. Right. right. That's And actually, that was a real room, whereas the Baker House was never built. Right. Do you want to talk right. about the Baker House a bit then? Because this, yeah. this is a really, I think, important point that kind of brings everything together we've been chatting about.
1: So Adolf Loves met, met Josephine Baker um, in 1926 and designed a house for her. And there's all kinds of rumors and, and different kinds of um, me- me- speculations about whether or not she actually you know, hired him to do it or not. And most evidence show that she did not hire him to do it. And in fact, what's really interesting is like, on the one hand, this design became incredibly famous. Like most architectural students would probably have studied it, Um, even though it was never built. It was just a a design. Um, So on the one hand, you know, it's a famous architectural piece of history. On the other hand, Baker, in all of her letters and all the archives that I've gone through, has... Rarely, In fact, there's, some, there's, some, there's like a very mild reference to it, but she never even mentions the house. There's a mild reference to meeting Adolf Lowe's, but she never even mentioned this house. So this house that is so famous in architectural history and is named after her because it was built for her, the Josephine Baker house, she actually didn't ever pay any attention to at all. <laughs> um, and, and what we know is that he gave her the plans and she didn't like it, so she didn't build it. So it's a, it's, a, it's a completely imaginary project on so many levels. But anyway, he built this house, it's very famous, and it's, um, it's very um, modern looking square, you know, it's boxy, and it has black and white marble stripes on the outside, so it looks like zebra stripes. And it's not that so surprising that Baker decided not to build this house, because it was not a very, it's not a very um, practical house it is dominated by a giant swimming pool in the middle, two-story tall um, swimming pool in the middle of the house. And the kitchen is tiny and the living quarters are smallish. So it's actually kind of a, it's, it's not a domestic house. It's more of a theater. And it's not surprising that she didn't want to build this house. <laughs> living in it. Um, but so that's the, that's the, so part of my chapter on this house is sort of making, so everyone understands the house to be, um, Loses sort of masculinist and primitivist projection about Baker, and he and they read the swimming pool as a kind of um, uh, a voyeuristic, you know, um, s- showcase for Baker. But what I try to do in my book is to think through the logic, the articulation of of, of, of uh, what I call the politics of specularity, like who's watching what in the house. And then using Josephine, this sounds so complicated. I'm sorry, using Josephine Baker's performances and her performative strategies around hide and seek to do a counter reading of the house. So that instead of thinking of the house as a architectural um, entrapment of Josephine Baker, I see Josephine Baker's performance styles as a way of rethinking how the house and its logic of um who's watching what works
0: does that make sense is that too <laughs> oh no <laughs> I, yeah no um you want to talk about the pool, the swimming pool cuz for me that's like the moment where i really got this argument
1: yeah so so the so the, the the normal i not normal but the so for many years the the lowes house was understood as a kind of um racist projection on Loser's part, where he designed a house with a giant swimming pool with a hallway around it so that it's almost as if, if she were to swim in the pool, she would be a kind of zoological ex- exhibition, right? For people to look at. And there's, that is prob- there's, nothing, there's, there's, there's probably a lot of sound reason to that reading. But I think what is interesting about a house is actually that instead of, if you think about the, 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 what I thought was interesting about a swimming pool is actually the way in which Lowe's also built all these dark corridors around it that are supposed to be where the spectator get to watch Baker. But if you think about, a, you know first of all, in a very basic sense, if Josephine Baker lived in this house, she would not be looking at herself. She would be enjoying the house if she were to live there. So the sort of argument that this is about showing Baker in this kind of zoological show doesn't quite play if just even at that sort of practical level. But also I think theoretically looking at the floor plans, what's interesting to me is that the hallways around the swimming pool are lit in a very low light. Number one, Um, but also lit from um, not so much the light, but from um, lit from above. So it turns out, I think, that if we were actually to build this building the way Lowe's designed it, the person in the in the hallway is also being um, spotlighted, and because of the way the reflection on the glass would work, it would actually be very hard because the lights are the light is in the hallway, but not in the pool. So it's a person watching who's actually being highlighted. And because of the reflection, what the person watching would be be most, not only Baker, but also his or her own reflection. So I I make the argument that, in fact, this thing, this house that is designed to make Baker the victim of voyeurism is actually very self-exposing. And the person who is a voyeur is also the person who is being exposed. And that, to me, is a kind of metaphor for thinking about colonialism itself, that the colonial master always think he is the one in control and doing the seeing, But there are many instances in which he's the one being seen that he's the object as well.
0: So, yeah. So the other place that I, I thought that this was very, it's, so, it's fascinating throughout the book, but the other moment where the, uh like the, 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 the desire to be mastered and also to master and that kind of impossible aporia that the subject, even the subject, the colonial subject, right? Experiences in addition to the, loose house with the pool is also later when you talk about another French architect who also had a very interesting, intimate relationship with Baker biographically, but also, you know, rhetorically Mm -hmm. in in the imaginary of of their identities together is Le Corbusier, who wound up on a ship with Baker and then later wrote about this experience as part of his theory of design and and this cross-dressing piece. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so like this. I know. It's like you said earlier, you cannot make this stuff up. So do you want to also talk about that? Because I think even if the house isn't resonating with readers about the argument, this this will land the point home, I think, in a way that lends itself well to describing in the podcast as opposed to needing the visuals. Right.
1: So so Le Corbusier and um, Joseph Baker were on the same cruise going to South America. And they met on this cruise. And it is mostly, under, I think most people believe, think that um, they had an affair on board the ship. And we think so partially because um, Le Corbusier has drawings of Baker in bed and things like that. Um, and so, but what's fascinating about this is that one day on board of this ship for a costume ball, Le Corbusier shows up at the ball in, in blackface and dressed like Josephine Baker that is in in feathers and a banana skirt. So, <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of amazing if you think about this. So he shows up cross-dressed and crop you know in, in a in a cross-dress cross gender cross-racial performance. And he sh- you know so can you imagine if your date shows up dressed like you <laughs> or dressed as you? Um so it's a it's a, a really, I think, like vertiginous moment where on the one hand it is clearly what it is, his primitivist projections. On the other hand, it is also a moment where you see the profound identification that Le Corbusier had with Josephine Baker. And that and this is a this is a Freudian insight that to want something, to desire something, and to want to be something can often be the same thing, which is a very startling proposition, you know? Um, and so what I love about that moment is thinking about, it is a, a perfect moment where you see col- primitivist, colonial, European, modernist appropriation of the racial other as exactly that. I don't want to lessen that point. But it is also a moment of self um, opening. It is a moment of contagion. It's a moment of... Um, so the the appropriation is goes deep, is, I guess, part of what I want to say, right? That it is not just about making use of another person, but it's also about a kind of vulnerability and opening yourself up to... Um, it's a kind of escape. I also made the argument in the book that for Le Corbusier, who was feeling social and um, social pressure of various kinds, being able to be somebody else was a profound fantasy. You know, and this is, this is a second skin metaphor, right? What it, the desire to be in someone else's skin? Um, and he, and here with Le Corbusier, he actually <laughs> dressed up like that. Um, he actually, you know, put on black paint and so forth. So um, yeah, I don't know if that captures the point in the way that you were thinking.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think you've done an excellent job of capturing. And, and again, I just have to tell listeners that this is one of those books that is absolutely worth reading. I mean, I, I basically at some point just stopped highlighting stuff because I was just <laughs> like, I may as well just highlight the whole book at this point. So while well, I think we've actually done a really lovely job of capturing the essence and some of the really fabulous moments in this book, it's there's just so many fabulous moments that... I really would encourage readers to pick it up for themselves. And we're we're coming up on forty minutes, and I think, I think we've done I think we've done it. So I'm going to ask you if you want to if there's any other part of the book like we didn't really talk about the banana skirt as much as I'd like, or Picasso and that, or oh gosh, or the Cole Porter lyrics. So if there is another really great part of the book that you love, we definitely have time for you to maybe talk about your favorite moment about the book? Oh, okay. So so I think one of the moments that I
1: really love is because it's one of the questions that I had was, so I have to say that in the beginning, I also, you know, for a long time, I didn't, I haven't, I didn't know, I mean, I know her name, but I never looked at her movies and her work, partially because I was, you know, I was like everyone else. I thought, oh, this is just another primitivist figure, you know, um, it's going to be too painful for me to to watch. But when I actually finally watched her movie Princess Tam Tam, that's when a lot of the stuff also came to a kind of like head for me and and really captured my interest and Im- imagination. So there's a very famous scene in Princess Tam Tam where Josephine Baker basically um was performs the strip tease. I read about this scene way before I saw it. Um, the all the photo all the um artwork that advertises the movie shows you know renders the scene of tease. And the thing is when I actually finally saw the movie and got to that scene, she didn't strip at all. She took off her dress, but underneath that, instead of being naked, was another full-length gown. <laughs> and that was when I thought, oh wow, nakedness is such a imaginary, phantasmatic thing for Josephine Baker that people could remember a movie in which she stripped and talk about it endlessly and have all kinds of publicity around it, when in fact, she never even stripped. She never got naked. And so that was a moment I thought was a that was that was a very significant moment for me both personally but also in the book is when I address in the book how is it that you could have someone that everyone talks about their nakedness
0: but who was in fact never naked in the first place uh, Yeah the the strip I, yeah and then and then also the other one um where she's in the 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 cage with the feathers like the birds singing I just thought what a what a way to think about her and her performances and how she resonates—that is just not how I would have thought about this prior to reading the book. Well, thank you. I'm glad. Then. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah. Well, I think we have I mean, so much food for thought. So again, I really want to encourage readers to pick, uh, to listeners to pick, listeners and readers, I guess, to pick up Second Skin. Also, if you're not interested in buying a personal copy, really encourage your library to pick up a copy because. You know, supporting the libraries is one way that we support these academic presses. Now, from what I understand, Anne, you've got another book coming up, ornamentalism, that maybe we could have on the podcast next. Yes, that would be lovely. That just it just came out this January and it is an extension of the story.
1: If if Second Skin is about modernist romance with primitivism, this is about modernism's other great racial imaginary, which is Orientalism and the very ancient. Um, association between the so-called or- Oriental and the ornamental. This, I mean, I just, I'm talking about from Plato through Marco Polo, from Wiesmann to Oscar Wilde, from um, Adolf Loos to William Morris. There has been this incredibly long, enduring association between the Oriental and the um, ornamental. And so this new book is about that. It's really a book about the confusion between persons and things.
0: Excited If it's even half as, I'm sure it's like just as good, but if it's as half as good as this, I'm going to absolutely just dive right into it. All right. Well, thank you, Lee. This has been really fun. I'm glad you, yeah, I'm glad you're on. So I will go ahead and encourage everyone once again to check out Second Skin and look for another interview with Anne on her her latest book coming up hopefully in the next month or so. Take care. Thank you. Bye.